high short kick that is going to come up and bounce at the 20. Rutgers has a chance to recover it, and they do! What a play by the Scarlet Knights! Get it to Harper with three, with two, with one. Harper for the win! Got it! Down and 10 at the 21. Wimson hands it off. It's Benunga getting to the corner left. 20, 15, touching to 10. Benunga down near the goal line. He is in! Touchdown, Rutgers! Now with six. Baker making his move with five. Step back three for the lead. Welcome back to the Scarlet Faithful Podcast and happy to have David Anderson returning to discuss Rutgers football now that the offseason continues to progress. Uh, spring camp uh, a little bit more than a month out, uh, but lots of news with Rutgers football and uh, obviously a critical offseason in Greg Schiano's uh, second tenure at Rutgers. Wanted to take some time to evaluate how far he's taken the program from when he inherited it back. Uh, just four plus years ago and what he needs to do to elevate it moving forward and wanted to start with the coaching staff just in terms of some of the recent moves Scott Fallone announced on uh, Tuesday that he will be the new tight ends coach replacing Andrew Arich who took over at Harvard Harvard as the head coach there Fallone's been with the program since Shiano returned uh, and worked specifically under Pat Flaherty on the offensive line last season uh, so there seems like some symmetry there in terms of taking over tight ends, uh, and he's been key in recruiting as well. And we also know from previously the defensive line replacing Marquise Watson with Julian Campeni and Colin Farrell, uh, emphasizing the priority there on the defensive line. Overall, David, what are your thoughts on the coaching staff and kind of Chiano's success and or philosophy in utilizing his coaching staff in this second tenure? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, the first thing to keep in mind is that the coaching staff is not the same in terms of what they need to be able to do compared to his first tenure or even how it was under Chris Ash. Now that you have more assistance, now that you have more people who can go out on the road, really what you're trying to do is you're trying to build a staff that has a little bit of everything, but it doesn't have to be all in one person. And so uh, first of all, congratulations to Coach Arich for getting a head coaching position. It continues a trend of former Shiano assistants who have been elevated to head coaching positions elsewhere. For a coach who has a slightly below 500 record in Greg Shiano to have the coaching tree that he does when it comes especially to head coaches and guys who became coordinators is pretty impressive. Like we don't, I don't have any data to back that up, but it does seem quite, you know, extensive. So hopefully good luck to, well, good luck to Coach Arch unless they're playing University of Pennsylvania, and then obviously I hope they lose. But beyond that, you know, Scott, Scott Vallone, I think is another sign of, it's very important to promote people from within that are rising stars because you don't want them to go elsewhere. One of the very first things I learned at my very first job out of college was from our sales director when I was still in sales, talking about how the whole point of building a good sales organization was having a good farm team. That in effect, you can go get a free agent now and then and plug a hole. But if your whole strategy is, is not growing from within and just getting hired guns, that is going to be hit or miss. And just like Shiano talks about the pipeline of people when it comes to players, he's also mentioned that for coaches. So 
Ballone seemingly has done a good job, especially in recruiting. And like I was saying, you don't necessarily need to be a great teacher of a position and a recruiter and all the things that go along with it. But Valone has shown a lot of that. And then just to dispel some things that are probably rightfully asked, but probably not that important. Yeah. Valone was a defensive lineman at Rutgers, but he was really good. And so it's entirely possible that a guy like him, if you put him at tight end or you put him at offensive line, he probably would have been good at that too. Right. So there's an entirely good chance that, He's smart enough to understand the playbook, offensive concepts, and a lot of the techniques. And that if this was a different coaching staff, maybe I wouldn't trust them to make a move like this. But Greg Schiano has proven time and time again in good choices for his coaching staff, uh, both 1.0 and 2.0. Totally agree. And I think that that's obviously, if you're going to be a developmental program, right, you have to have good coaches that can develop players. Uh, and I think we, we're seeing that in, in real time uh, in this second tenure uh, with, with what they've been able to do just in terms of the defense now, you know, uh, and we hope that they take that next step. But I think from what they were when he took over to how he's recruited the position, how he's uh, uh Develop players along in that group. Uh, it, it bodes well for. It, it's really the, you know always going to be the backbone of his coaching philosophy is having that defense to be able to control the game. Uh, because without a strong defense, you're not going to be able to do that. So I think knowing what Shiano has always done well, to see him do well again, and then now trying to figure out offensively. Um, you know wh what do you think in terms of aside from the coaching staff? He's done well in his return and, and also opportunity to help elevate things further. Sure. So I, I think I'm not going to necessarily say we're grading on a curve because I don't think it's fair to do that. Obviously you play got to play against the teams you're facing, but one of the big things we talked about when Shiano returned was how one of the biggest pros was recruiting and or, or, recruiting and just the vibe in the state of New Jersey fundraising, things like that. Now, in terms of this time around, I, I have to say that the vibe in New Jersey is just as good as it was the first time around at this stage, maybe not at 2006, 2007 levels, but that is back. The, like they used to, they said in the New York Mets in 1986, the magic is back. I don't know if we can go that far, but it's basically like the feeling around the program. Just, I was back in New Jersey this past weekend and just having aunts and uncles and cousins asking me about the program, they hadn't been doing that in quite some time. So that's back. And in terms of, for example, fundraising and support, we didn't even know what NIL was going to become when Shiano was rehired. So, yeah, do they have as much NIL money and support as other teams? No, we don't think so. But if you were to have brought in another coach that was not as familiar with the area – there's not a good there's not nearly as good of a chance that Rutgers would have been able to maintain the personnel that they've kept on their roster. And so when I was thinking about this over the last few days, that's definitely something that comes to mind. I'm not sure who you could have brought in that would have been a better uh, person to understand the landscape in New Jersey and maintain whatever NIL funds are in the changing landscape of college football. What, what are your thoughts on that one? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, my, my first thought is that not many, uh, uh, you know, the fact that you have the, the, the governor of New Jersey 
essentially got involved to make sure that Shiano came back uh, was certainly something uh, unique. Um, but yes, I think the fact that, yes, he had that built-in credibility. But I also think from a recruiting perspective, uh, tying off the, you know, and, and I'll never forget Shiano's first speech when he was back and just talking about how he needed to get everyone on board. And, you know, attendance-wise, it's taken a little while. And But I think this past season really generated excitement and there's real momentum now within the state. But I also think from a recruiting perspective, you know, he's, I, I like maybe, maybe the, the raw results, you know, from a statistical standpoint with rankings and all that isn't that much different yet at least. But I think that his overall approach to recruiting, you know, we talked about his time at Ohio state and what he's learned and he's talked about that too. But I think one thing that gets maybe not highlighted enough is that I think that he did, have a really positive influence uh, on his own recruiting philosophy by being at Ohio State um, in terms of how he's come back to Rutgers. You know, last year, the, the 24 class being a perfect example, you know, from a recruiting standpoint, you know, New Jersey was considered to have a down year. Uh, and, and and that didn't stop Rutgers from then generating, you know, probably his best class since he's been back, just in terms of uh, the coaches he has in his stock, you know, the regions that they recruit, utilizing that Big Ten footprint now, um, obviously tapping back into Florida. Um, but, you know, I think I feel like in the first tenure, he was very reliant and, and not saying this is a, a fault. It was more of just the climate back then, you know, needing the emphasis to, to, to hit gold in New Jersey. Uh, it's less important now, but then you already see in 25, you know, getting the commitment uh, just the other day from Jaden Elijah from Matawan, uh, you know, big body kids, six, seven, uh, three star. And then uh, Taliba Kaba from Hillside, you know, both those guys are considered top 20 recruits in the state. So you just see, I think, more versatility in terms of the recruiting footprint. You mentioned some of the changes with the coaches, and I think that helps, too, just in terms of how they can recruit and the support staff you can have now. Uh, and obviously social media and all that, but he's embraced it all. You know, I think. People like to harp on that he's stubborn and that he doesn't really evolve in certain ways. And I think that that is a valid argument to some degree. But I think in recruiting, we've seen positive changes from him and, and, and a more proactive and kind of diverse approach in how he's recruited. For sure. And on the, the Night Report podcast, I think that both they as well as uh, Brian Doan was talking about this on 247 – it's not that he's not, it's not that Chiano's, uh shies away from New Jersey, especially early on in the recruiting process. It's more that if a guy from New Jersey is uncertain at an early stage of the recruiting process, then he's not going to wait around for that player and say, mm -hmm. I need this particular player for this particular position. And that's why I'm not surprised that the two prospects you just mentioned are both from New Jersey. We're very early in the 25 recruiting cycle. They expressed early interest, even with, especially in the case of uh, Elijah, a pretty extensive offer list at this stage. I was quite surprised at how high uh, that was, which makes sense when you're that size. So, but, but that being said, I, I think that the danger zone you run into is where Ohio state is now. And I say danger zone when, you know, they, they, they're top of the conference for so many years, but the, the, the danger that you can run into if you're not focused on your state, especially a state like New Jersey is losing a little bit of that grit and losing a little bit of that edge. And when I talk to Ohio state fans who are trying to do an autopsy on their last three losses to Michigan, one of the things they keep telling me is that 
Michigan just seems tougher. They just seem more mentally tough. They seem like they care about the rivalry between Ohio State and Michigan more. And so Urban Meyer always had good enough players and schemes to overcome that, even if he didn't have that full, you know, heart of Ohio type of mentality per se. But you can see how just a little bit of a slip up and Ryan Day has now lost three straight. So I don't think Shiano is the same as Urban Meyer in terms of not understanding that because Shiano is much more of a, you know, disciplinarian and understanding this type of thing than Urban Meyer is, as anyone can tell you who's seen Urban Meyer clips from him coaching in Jacksonville, right? But I, I think Shiano has taken some of these lessons from Meyer, like you said, but also not totally pull to Chris Ash and say, we need to do it exactly like Ohio State. That's the balance that you need to to watch out for, right? And I think he's done a pretty good job straddling that line at the moment with these recruits. That's Yeah, that's a great point. I love that point. And uh, I think to your point about you know not having to wait on New Jersey kids anymore, it's about leverage too, right? Rutgers has more – it's more of a – it's more of a brand within the Big Ten than, bef- uh, than before they were in the Big Ten. They have reach now. They have a natural, you know, and also him being at Ohio State and, you know, he knows the Midwest better now. They know him more. I think that helps, too, in not having to, you know, you're not as um, hit or miss in terms of your class is going to be good or bad because of whether you get New Jersey kids or not. And I think also it's, you know, it, it shows he's been very smart and good always in terms of like taking walk-ons from so many different New Jersey high schools, something that Ash did not do. Um, you know, he knows how to cultivate relationships and, and, and build relationships in the state while also not necessarily, you know, um, uh, jeopardizing those by saying, listen, we have to, you know, we have to explore outside the state as well. I think they're really good at communicating in the recruiting process also, which some of these other schools are not. I think the point about, Ohio State and the edge, um, you know, I, th- I think Shiano still, first of all, that's ingrained in him personally. And I think also the whole chip on her shoulder about Rutgers, you know, not being respected and trying to climb the ladder in the Big Ten. I think that is an asset regardless of where kids come from. I agree on the New Jersey edge and all that. But I think that also typically a lot of the kids are still getting have a little bit of a chip on their shoulder naturally, just in terms of whether they feel like they should have been recruited higher or whatnot. So I, that's one thing I don't worry too much about um, with Shiano, just in terms of how he is as a person and, and a coach. But I think that that's a, an amazing point about he, he's taken the right lessons from Ohio State and applied them and made things better versus someone like Ash that we know just, you know, was so in over his head because he was expecting to just replicate that model without the resources and talent and, and reach and credibility and all that. So just in terms of where this program's going uh, and, and how far it's come, uh, what, I guess, where, where do you think the portal fits in in all this? Obviously, that's a big difference in recruiting as well. Yeah, I mean, I think the portal is – he's right with his philosophy that – kind of like I was saying with the farm system versus like free agency, it's a tool at your disposal. You got to use it. Right. And so I think even before the transfer portal was really the way it is now, when he first came back, I remember just cranking out articles in, I guess it was early 2020 when they were getting Ireland Brown and Michael Dwan for 
and um, like a bunch of yeah, guys. Really? Like I think I had six guys who all came just in the January of that year, and yeah, was one of them for sure. And they that was even before the transfer portal is now. But he was trying to just kind of fill some gaps and add competition in certain positions. I think the approach now has been good. And this is where you and I have a little bit of a disagreement. Like if we're kind of on the edges, which is around, for example, tight end. Rutgers is not focused on non-premium positions unless they can really get a difference maker. In the case of last year, safety, yeah, they could probably have plugged those holes, but they felt like Flip Dixon was going to be a difference maker at safety. Whereas at a position like corner, Eric Rogers and Charles Amonqua were not necessarily going to be like main difference makers. But since cornerback is a premium position, you need to just make sure you have depth because that's where you can get burned so easily. And so I do think he's done a smart job like that. And I don't know if some of that comes from having been in the NFL. I mean, he's, he's long mentioned how he struggled in the NFL because he wasn't prepared for a lot of certain things. But there might be a lesson that he learned, which is like if you're going to go for a tight end or a safety, even a linebacker, the guy's got to be a starter, basically, maybe even better than that for it to be worth taking a flyer on it. Whereas if it's a corner, a quarterback, an offensive lineman, even maybe a wide receiver, you just need to make sure that you're adding as much depth as you can. So I've been pretty impressed by that strategy and – I can't say that every other team is doing better or worse at it, but that's really how it works in the NFL. And it seems to have been working, let's say in these last two to three years with the way the transfer portal has evolved. Is that kind of how you see it? Or uh, was there another aspect of the transfer portal you wanted to touch on? Yeah, no, it's really good points. I think you're right. They, they have to be selective in terms of, you know, there's also a certain kind of ceiling in terms of who they're realistically going to be able to get out of the portal. And I think they've done a good job of, you know, not wasting their time uh, going after fool's gold in terms of knowing right. what they're up against. You know, they've lost a couple battles in terms of guys they thought maybe they could get that they ultimately lost out on. And, and NIL was obviously a factor there. Um, but, you know, yeah, I think they do have to prioritize by position. And he's not also – I don't – that you're ever going to see Shiano try to get 20 guys in the portal in one offseason like some of these other schools um, because I think that culture ties into it too. And I think, um, of course, basketball is in my brain, but I think him and Pykele are very similar in protecting their culture, um, you know, making it a privilege to be within the program and not just wanting to just bring guys in to bring guys in. Of course, you always want to increase the talent level, but um, I, I think you're right in the sense of the prioritizing certain needs um, I, just in terms of, <laughs> I wasn't exactly sure what you meant in terms of our potential disagreement. I think maybe because I've been saying they need to bring in a tight end and, uh, Bowman, you know, obviously served a purpose in terms of blocking. Um, I just think tight ends, one of those groups where you need to, you, you, you know, they haven't had a lot of, uh, success uh, outside of Lang and who's now gone. So while you could rely on who you have internally, and of course they know best, you know, I'd, I'd love to see them bring somebody in just to, to see, how that can mix things up. I don't know exactly how, how you feel about that position specifically. Yeah. I mean, we'll probably talk more about this as we get closer to spring practice. I just think that tight end is a position where guys get better every year and there's no reason 
to believe that if you brought someone in from the outside, that they would have been more effective than what you had last year in 2023. I, I, I don't see that per se. Uh, I think the point about Soraka that, you know, all the podcasts, including us have made is he doesn't use his tight ends every year, but if he has a good one, he'll use him. And so if you, if you think again, I think if you think you can get a guy who and I, Bowman was the right choice because there was an, a possibility that he would have been really good. I think he was not quite fast enough to get separation, and he wasn't quite as good playing basketball against Big Ten defenders as we saw him do at Maine, for example. But that was a smart roll of the dice where you could see a scenario where this guy would be a difference maker. But if not, then really you should be focused upon, you know, developing from within. And if your tight ends can't be effective in the past game, you use them as blockers and you throw with the ball to your backs more, like we talked about earlier last year. Uh, that's that's my personal position. But if, if you think you can get a guy who may have some more in the tank that he hasn't shown elsewhere, great. I mean, really, the best example, uh, not necessarily tight end, but at a position that's not necessarily considered premium, like, for example, at the NFL level, is Gus Edwards. I mean, Gus Edwards, if you told me that he was going to be as good as – if you told me he was going to have the NFL career that he's had when he first arrived at Rutgers, I would have told you you were insane. If you told me that he was going to have as good of a year that he had his one season at Rutgers, I would have said probably not. I wouldn't have called you insane, but I was not expecting him to be that good just in his one year there. So it's entirely possible that, you know, you can find a guy like that who may be better than what you have uh, that doesn't come at a large NIL cost or at the expense of making a lot of promises that you're not going to want to have to meet if the guy's not head and shoulders better than what you have. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you on that. And Edwards, it's like he found his niche in Baltimore, right? So a lot of it is just fit as well. Right. And I think that that's part of the transfer portal philosophy also is how they fit in terms of their needs, in terms of scheme, in terms of culture, all that. Uh, so I think being selective is a, is a, is a positive. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm probably just still upset that Travis Vokalek left and went to Nebraska, and I'm still kind of down about it. So I just want to get a high-impact tight end and, you know, but you could argue that Shiraka didn't even properly utilize Warren Sp- uh, for you know, spend. At, at, spend so it, yeah, he was so good. Uh, and I feel like they didn't even utilize him enough. So, but just in terms of where this is at now, entering year five, obviously off the success they've had this last year, um, not only this year, but just his tenure in general. And I know obviously the answer is going to be uh, a big part of it, but I guess to, to dig a little bit deeper, I mean, how much do you think, the success of, or, or failure of his 2.0 tenure will ultimately come down to quarterback play when it's all said and done. It's we'll find, we'll be able to answer this question a lot better one year from now, once we've seen how Oregon, Washington, USC and UCLA perform in the conference, because my concern is that you're going to end up in a lot more shootouts than you've been in before. This year, there were not many of those. The Michigan State game, Rutgers scored a lot of points in a really short period of time. That's true. But it wasn't a classic old shootout. It was bad weather conditions. Michigan State really wasn't moving the ball that well. 
for example, and Rutgers was able to mount the big comeback. I'm not sure how they're going to be able to mount comebacks against teams that, for example, Washington. I know they have a new coaching staff, but if you look at their history of the program, even dating back to their national championship in the early 90s, I mean, that's a program that if they're up on you by 21 points, they're not going to take their foot off the gas. They're not going to just try to do like you would do in basketball and take the air out of the ball and shrink the game. No, if they're having success, they're going to just keep chucking it. And I don't see with the new coaching staff that changing over there. So my concern is that even if Rutgers has a more favorable schedule this upcoming season, the type of games they might end up in are not conducive to win if you don't have good quarterback play. So, yes, I do think it matters. I do think that this is ultimately going to be what it comes down to. And I'll tease it now. We're getting ready to do an actual just quarterback episode that's more than just position groups. I know that that might be something of interest to our uh, listeners. I think it kind of got put on the back burner because basketball has just been rejuvenated over the last couple of games, which is great to see. Uh, but when I look at the quarterback, what they're doing with it, you know, you got a Ashenfelder coming in who's kind of a little bit like a Tanner Morgan. He's got maybe a high floor. Um, AJ Serace, obviously we, we hope that he's going to be a, a great quarterback in pretty every aspect of the position, but I think they can get by with, let's say average quarterback play or average quarterback, let's call it effectiveness. Because I mean, when I look at Gavin Limsat, yeah, his numbers aren't great, but the fact that he can run just makes him more effective as a player, even if his skill set isn't mm-hmm. quite there because you have to account for the running game. But I think that the risk that you run is that a quarterback can cover up a lot of holes. If you don't have Kyle Manungai having the year that he had, or if Sam Brown is injured again, there's, you would have lost a lot more games this year. Like you probably don't win Michigan state. You probably win temple. You probably win Virginia tech, but maybe by the skin of your teeth. Um, And when you're getting those tight games, things can bounce the other way. And so having poor quarterback play or even just quarterback play that is dependent on the rest of your team can make it so that you might have a season that looks a lot worse than it was. And even though you can look at a program and say the core bones are pretty good, the perception from the outside, if you have a three and nine season when it comes to recruiting and just other you know donors, things like that, it can be a lot worse. So I think a lot of these things are going to be magnified by a win here, a loss there. I mean, just looking at this past season, imagine if they went five and seven and not seven and six, how we would be talking about the program right now. And that's really just one game, one game. If they would have, let's say, lost yep. Michigan State, like that, we would be having completely different look at the season. Maybe you're hiring more people, firing more people. Maybe coaches are leaving to go elsewhere. All these things could destabilize a program. And so – I do think it matters a lot, but I also think if there's a coach who can minimize what a quarterback has to do outside of Kirk Ferentz, it's probably Greg Schiano. Yeah. Excellent points. And uh, in terms of just, you know, it's, 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 you brought a basketball too. And it's like, you know, with, with the offense right now, like their defense is so good. If their offense could just be average, their ceiling as a team would be so much higher. And I think it's the same for football, where if they just get competent quarterback play, 
They don't need a superstar quarterback, but, you know, a competent quarterback play where it elevates the offense to a, you know, uh, average to above average offense, you know, and I mean above average, like slightly above, you know, that's going to help the defense. That's going to help the program overall. And they're going to be a better team. And you're right. It's a game of inches. And, you know, that Michigan State game, I mean, flipped the whole trajectory of the season, um, which, you know, I kind of love in, in a sense because it also goes back to the identity of the program, not just defense, but special teams and the emphasis that Shiano puts on it and how the special teams really flipped that game more than anything else. Um, but I think that, yes, I agree. And obviously quarterback is always the most important position, but I think how Rutgers is approaching it in the future is very interesting. Like you mentioned, Sirius and Ashenfelder is the quarterback from Florida in the 25 class. You know, they're stacking – uh, you're, they're stacking talent in that position, I think, strategically and, and in advance. And, you know, I think that's one you can't be so reactive in the portal. Uh, you know, you could take a shot here and there. But I think that was part of, you know, Rutgers' previous struggles was that they were always trying to take a shot in the portal and hope they struck gold with a quarterback. And, you know, it never seemed to really work out. Obviously, Vedral was a stabilizing force, um, you know, for Shiano and I think necessary at the time. But now you see that he's in his fifth year. He's really starting to cultivate, you know, in the high school recruiting front for quarterback and how he positions it. You touched on schedule. Um, you know, how much does the ceiling just automatically increase uh, now that they're no longer in the East? They're no longer bound to have to play Michigan, Ohio State, Penn State every year. I totally agree on your point about the West Coast teams. We've mentioned it before about the defense having to cover passing first teams now, which they didn't have to do a lot last year. But overall, you know, how much do you think the ceiling for the team, not just next year, but overall now moving forward, having a flex schedule and not being so tied to just being in the East helps the trajectory under Shiano moving forward? I think there's a lot of aspects to this. The first being that just not having Ohio State, Michigan, and Penn State, I mean, you won one out of 30 games against those three teams. <laughs> So no matter how good you think those those former Pac-12, 10, 8, I think they were all originally in the Pac-8 teams were, they're not – There's a you're not going to go 1-29 in 29 against them unless you have a really, really bad coaching staff again. I'm, I'm, you're not. Yeah. So Agreed. that's the first thing about it. And so that kind of leads into just the, the mentality and optimism. When we look at this past season, even though Rutgers did lose those last four games – two of which are two of those blue bloods, to one to Maryland and one to Iowa, there was a belief, rightfully so, that the team could win any of those games. I know of the four, we were the most down on Penn State and we were proven to be correct, but there was still a optimism that it could be won. Whereas if you're if you're facing like a, a team that you just know you can't win – or just a stretch of games at the end of the season, that really takes a toll on your confidence. I mean, to loop in another Rutgers sport, since we're kind of bouncing around today, I did not realize how much of a psychological toll the losing was taking on the volleyball program, for example, right? And how you have to remember, these are 18 to 22-year-olds who, if they just are getting pounded in football, for example, like that is not good. If you, how many times have we looked back at the schedule, even two years ago, and we're like, there's no way they're going to win one of these last few games, except for maybe Maryland, for example, just because they've beat them a few times. 
Like that is so disheartening. And so when you play teams that you don't play every year, there's always going to be an optimism. It's not like this team crushed us last year. And where that kind of just keeps you motivated. I know I talk about it all the time on, on the podcast, like as a former player, it keeps you lifting on those Tuesday afternoons prior to the game. It keeps you watching extra film. It gets you showing up to the locker room a little bit early when you could just be spending another 20 minutes having lunch with your friends. Like all these sort of things go into the success of a football program more than any other sport. And so just to not feel like we're going to get our head kicked in or there's only one possible narrow way of us winning matters a lot. Which leads me to the last thing, which is Greg Schiano is a master at this, which is he is always equally or more prepared than his opponents. Very rarely do they get completely outcoached if it's a team that is coming off a bye or that is the first game of the season or a team that they haven't played. I mean, if you look at this past season, Iowa's a team, they played them last year. They So Iowa had just as good of a scouting report on Rutgers as vice versa. So there wasn't really much of an edge that Shiano could kind of garner from that and facing another staff like that's tough but when he has faced like Miami in the bowl game Rutgers is definitely a better coach for that game there's no doubt when he came at the beginning of the season yep. Northwestern with extra time to prepare I know Northwestern was in turmoil but they demolished them and Northwestern as it turned out really didn't have that much less talent probably comparable talent and he destroyed them right so I think Chiano he can cultivate these little wrinkles, these little advantages, especially of teams that they may not have just played the year before, that he has more prep time and more uncertainty. Um, and I think Soraka probably falls in the same bucket. I mean, he has always struggled against Iowa, but he's played them every year. And so I think that there's all of these factors play into it. But in this chain reaction, I think, Every step that you take, it's better for Rutgers longer term than what they were up against previously in the East Division. Yeah, totally agree. I think another part of this, too, is that, you know, and obviously you get some of it on film, but, you know, the physicality of Rutgers and the toughness of Rutgers that they displayed this past season, you know, that's going to be a change and adjustment for some of these Pac-12 teams, I think. And something that, you know, isn't just about preparation with the coaching staffs and game planning and all that. You know, Rutgers is a team that a lot of teams didn't want to play because they just play really, really hard uh, and really, really tough. And I think that that is going to give them an advantage against playing new teams that aren't used to that style because I think that plays into it too. You know, even in the East, like the teams that were beating Rutgers, like, you know, Harbaugh even said, I mean, Michigan knew they were going to get a dogfight from Rutgers. But regardless of what the score was going to be, they knew what to expect physically from Rutgers. And I think that that's something – but I think in terms of long-term, yeah, you're right. Uh, having those three guys off, teams off the schedule, you know, they're, they're obviously play them at times, but not being so set. I mean, those are essentially three automatic losses on your schedule every year. And to your point about the losing, I think that was a huge problem in the Ash era is that, you know, towards the end, it was hopeless. And it wasn't just hopeless to fans. It was hopeless to the guys, to the players, to the team. And I think that's a big reason why you saw Hobbs make that unprecedented you know, for Rutgers, you don't normally see them make a firing four games into the season. Um, I think that's a big reason why that ultimately happened. Um, and it's belief, right? That's always been Shiano's kind of go-to as well. It's just believing in one another and believing. Um, and, and I think 
you know, having the positive momentum and, and, and we know that line was fine in terms of turning the momentum of the season last year, but now you have a real chance this off season. I don't think just to build this year, but to build beyond, you know, with what you have behind the seniors on this team, you know, it's obviously we've talked about it already, the key for 2025 and player development and getting those guys ready. And it starts in the spring this year. Uh, and then in terms of who they're able to bring in. So I, I think he's finally gotten it to the point where things are starting to roll a little bit. Obviously, you can, you know, it's not always a straight line trajectory. It could go back at any minute, like you've also touched on. But I think there's certainly an opportunity this year and this offseason to continue to move forward and to even have an even better year this year. I, I'm kind of perplexed at some of the national, you know, if you've seen some of the preseason rankings, I mean, you see Rutgers 15th, 16th in the Big Ten. I don't think it makes any sense. Um, but I guess just any closing thoughts you have uh, on where the program is from when Shiana took over and kind of what you're looking for moving forward. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm just looking back at all the notes like some of our concerns were about his recent results, maybe what had happened with the Patriots. But I guess the best way to frame this would be if I knew what the college football landscape is now or would be in four years, I would have been more optimistic that Shiano was the right choice. I was pretty lukewarm. I was not against the hire. I was not like super like they have to bring him back. I, and it wasn't because necessarily I trusted Pat Hobbs. I mean, we saw his first football coaching hire, though he's had success in mostly all the other sports. But I, I think that the, the sport has shifted in a way that accentuates what Shiano does well and what his programs are about more than we realized would be the case when he was rehired. And so... Again, I, I probably would have, if I was to go back in time, I would have been more on the pro Shiano train of like that he would be the right hire uh, to come back because a lot of, and, and even to his credit, one thing I didn't mention was when you look at uh, Ohio state, I think that his first year in 2020 was actually more open-minded Shiano than in the, even in the year since. He let the offense chuck the ball around. He was a little bit more creative mm -hmm. on on just letting the defense just turning them loose than he normally had been even in the past. Like, and so I give him credit for that. But then I also give him credit for kind of pulling back some of it and saying, okay, that's just not what we do. We're not a downfield passing team. And now the identity of the team is reestablished, but he did try in 20 and even 21. And we'll talk a lot about this when we do the position reviews with wide receiver that, I mean, I don't know if we're going to see a season where the receivers are as effective as they were in 2020, which was his first year back. I don't know if we're going to see that again, but he has dialed it back, but he was willing to try something new when he first returned to just, you know, see that. So definitely give him credit there. Um, just real quick. I, I wanted to circle back to your point. Um, Harbaugh, but not Harbaugh at Michigan, Harbaugh at Stanford. When Stanford rose from being an absolute dumpster fire to being one of the best teams in the Pac-10, uh, might have still been Pac-10 at that time, it was because they basically took the Iowa approach, strong defense, have a zillion tight ends, pound the rock with Toby Gerhardt at the time, and then Harbaugh, ultimately uh, David Shaw, took over that program, and that worked. 
in that conference because they were the only team that played that type of football. And so, yeah, there's definitely a pathway where, and that's something you can't scout. When you're watching film, it's easy to say, okay, they run this route. Their team is going to play a defense with this formation. They're going to play seven yards from the line, whatever. What you can't prepare for is how hard these guys are going to hit you, how fast they really are. You can't, you can't really prepare that on film. Uh, There's a classic clip of Brian Billick in that Super Bowl between the Ravens and the Giants where early in the game, he was like, they have no idea how fast we are. And you could see him on the sidelines, that Super Bowl, like, we're going to destroy them. And he wasn't even prepared for a win as big. I think it was 34-7. Sorry to our Giant fan friends who, you know, have to remember how that butt whooping. But, like, you can't – he wasn't even ready for it. And his team was the faster one. So if he wasn't ready for it, I'm sure that um, the Giants weren't ready for it. So sometimes that toughness and that mentality is something that you can't can't prepare for. And then the other thing I'm trying to mention about it is I think Rutgers is going to have a better chance to beat Ohio State, Penn State, and Michigan now that they're not playing them every year because you have less familiarity with these guys and less familiarity is always better for the underdog. It's always better when you're the underdog, whether it's boxing, whether it's football, whether it's anything, right? That gives you an advantage that, you know, the favorite who plays you every year is, is they're going to know what you do. Even though Harbaugh said at Michigan, Hey, there's going to be a dog fight. He knew what he was looking at, right? He knew what to expect. He knew how fast Rutgers players were against his players. And so there's definitely some of those advantages that I think Chiano is the right coach to take advantage of. But the question is, yes, can they maintain the players and not have defections? This year they've done a great job on the defensive side. Your question about quarterback, we'll talk more about that in the upcoming weeks. Yeah, they, they, there's no reason to believe they couldn't have a, a season where they lose a lot more games, but the core bones of the program are so good. Um, that's entirely possible. So I'm optimistic about the team, but again, take it with a grain of salt. Even though Rutgers might have been a nine-win team with above-average quarterback play this past season, sometimes the ball doesn't bounce your way, and that doesn't necessarily mean that you know if they would have went five and seven this year, that the core bones of the program wouldn't be strong. Totally agree. I think to your last point, also not playing those teams every year. The other part of it is the mental toll. You know, you're going to have guys on Rutgers that haven't lost to Michigan before, haven't lost to Penn State before, and they're not going to have that kind of emotional or mental uh, hurdle to overcome when they play those teams. Uh, so I think that will help as well. And you're right. I mean, it's, uh, again, it's a game of inches. Uh, I, I think that preparation is a huge part that you touched on. I think that is why you have faith in Shiano to that, that you know, ceiling is always going to be debatable, even in the big 10 without divisions, you know, how high can he take Rutgers in the conference remains to be seen. But I think we can all agree that the floor is certainly raised with Shiano there just based on certain the qualities that he has, one of which that you highlighted was preparation and how he um, has this team uh, just kind of, you know, believing in one another, well-coached, de- player development, 
uh, the strength and, uh, you know, strength and uh, conditioning program we haven't even touched on with Jay Butler and the consistency there. I think that's elevated the program as well. So a lot of good things, certainly hope for the future. And we have plenty more to discuss this offseason. And uh, maybe we'll come back with a quarterback episode next. But uh, spring camp coming up in the next month as well. As always, thanks, David Anderson, for all your great insight. I know people missed you. It's been a little bit of a while. I wanted to get you on. Hope you're feeling better. And uh, thanks to everybody for listening and watching Scarlet Faithful Podcast once again.